Okay, Jim says we're ready. So we're ready to rock and roll here from the Alamo in New Ken, not the one in San Antonio, Texas, the one in New Kensington, Pennsylvania. And we're grateful to be here today, grateful to see you all in our hearts and minds. As I begin to speak today, I'm very aware of my dear friend and Jim's, and in fact, a friend of all of Tetelestai Phalanx, Ricky Martin, who in probably about an hour from now, on this very day, will be speaking the word of God at the funeral of his mom, who departed from this life this very week. And we certainly have a petition before the throne of grace for him. And we know that he will be speaking of the salvation that will one day be seen and experienced by all flesh. And so Isaiah 40 and verse 5, Ricky, and all of our, we extend all of our sympathy to you and to your family and thank God for the reunion of your family and the fact that they're going to hear the word from you today. And I'm also thinking of Johanna Hubbard from Tucson, Arizona, and thinking of you, Johanna, in your loss, the loss of your daughter, Mia, who received the great blessing of departure from this world and this life, and is with someone who, if you can imagine, loves her much more than you do. I did leave you a voicemail, but I was told that you might not get it. But uh, we love you, and to tell us thy phalanx is with you. And I, my prayer is that in Second Thessalonians two, sixteen and seventeen, that the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father personally will comfort you and give you great compassion. Lately, I've been praying for that. And my wife and I have been praying for that because the great compassion of God is what we experienced at the loss of my parents, my father first, then my mom. We experienced my family, my sisters and I, and all of us together experienced the great compassion of God through that time. And so that's what I pray for those in our ministry and among our friends and families who have lost loved ones. So 2 Thessalonians 2.16 and 17 is a good place to hunker down and make a petition for that time, as well as the fact that we ourselves can be a comfort once we have been afflicted or brought into sorrow or grief. We can use the comfort that we receive to comfort others going through the same things. And so today... I was thinking on the way down here that I ought to open in prayer. (laughs) So, Father, we pray that you'll open our eyes to behold your son, Jesus Christ, as such a great salvation in your word. I pray that as the word goes forth, that it will be received with meekness and become the implanted word, which is able to save souls. Use today's message, therefore, Father to lift hearts and to lift heads, for you are our glory and the lifter of our head. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Now, as I was on the way down here, I was thinking how oftentimes people expect a preacher to speak timely truths into the times in which we're living. And certainly there are many voices trying to do that and perhaps even doing that. Timely truths into the times. I personally have been motivated to speak rather of timeless truths into these times. Timeless truths are always timely. And so the timeless truth that we're speaking about is the gospel of God's son, gospel of God's son. The truth as it is embodied in Jesus can be spoken into any time in history, whether it's our time time of affliction and tribulation and trouble for the whole world or in times of prosperity and relative prosperity. And so I choose rather, if you want to know the reason why you don't always hear comments about the present situation in our country, I have opted rather to speak timeless 
truths into our times. There may be some timely comments along with that. Who knows? But we're studying, we see Jesus. We're studying the timeless epistle, a treatise as it's called, a homily or a sermon. It's been called many things, but we are studying Hebrews. And under the topic, we see Jesus. Any time we speak of Hebrews and speak from Hebrews, we could title the message, We See Jesus. Anytime we speak from Hebrews, we could title the message, Such a Great Salvation. Now, we've reached the first burst or salvo of exhortation in this book. This book is a splendid, elegant, glorious blend of exposition, theological exposition, and exhortation, the impartation of great incentive and momentum to the listeners or the hearers of the book of Hebrews. The first burst of exhortation is Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. It's arranged around this phrase, such a great salvation. And the last time we had a message together, I spoke about that topic. And again, it's always relevant. So still again, let me make the point that we have come to Hebrews 2020. I'm speaking as a pastor of church, but everybody's welcome. I've always said, if someone decides they want to listen to the messages from this website or from this church, hop on. You can hop on the train, even though the train's been running for many, many miles and has not reached its destination. Hop on this train. There ain't no condemnation on this train. So you're always welcome and all are welcome. But I make the point that as far as those who have been along with me in all of our messages for the past many years, especially recently, we have come to this study by taking a particular path in the word. Because of this, we can compare such a great salvation, that phrase, with other terms which we've become familiar with over the past few years. We spent no little time in recent studies on a subject called apokatastasios panton. Apokatastasios panton. That's a Greek phrase from Acts 3.21. It's called the restoration of all things. It's something that the voice of God announced from time immemorial through all the prophets, as Acts 3.21 says it. The apocatastasis, you'll see this in print if you want to and see how it's spelled, etc. The apocatastasis, as it's called for short, is another description or another descriptive term for such a great salvation, as Hebrews 2.3 speaks of it. Because the apocatastasis is precisely a saving act of God with relationship to everything and every being over the course of all of time and history. So there is also a notable parallel between Acts 3.21 and Hebrews 2.3 on another level. And that is, both of these verses speak of God speaking in the prophets. What God's voice spoke about in various times and by various ways, as Hebrews 1.1 puts it, from time immemorial, as Acts 3.21 puts it, has been, is being, and will be fulfilled in his Son. God, who speaks in a Son, speaks in Jesus, in and by whom is the restoration of all things. We dealt with another term which we could make equivalent to or synonymous with such a great salvation. We did that recently in increment 34. This is increment 35. And we called it the great intention. This is from the Septuagint translation of Isaiah 9, 5. In the English translation, it would be 9, 6. There, a child who was born for us and a son given to us, no doubt prophetic references to Jesus, the son in whom God spoke with definitive finality, Hebrews 1-2, that son who was given to us is named messenger of great counsel. 
the messenger of great counsel, or even more exactly, the angel of the great intention. Angel there not referring to the inferior angels, but to Jesus Christ. The word that is translated as counsel there, or decision, or determination, or better, intention, is B-O-U-L long E in the Greek, boule. And the intention of God is his unstoppable intention. Boule also has the meaning, or boule with the accent on the second syllable, also has the meaning of resolution, not in the sense of solution, but a resolution in the sense of a determination or a decision, a final decision, really. It is used, that word is used in Ephesians 1.11 for the resolution or the intention of God, which in turn is connected to the mystery of God's will in Ephesians 1.9. So both the mystery of God's will, Ephesians 1.9, and God's great intention or resolution is to sum up all things in the heavens and on earth in Christ his beloved son, as he's called in Ephesians 1.6. This summing up is achieved through reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Ephesians 1.10, Colossians 1.20, and it's called recapitulation, anakephaliosis, as we're going to see. The reconciliation of all things in the heaven on earth in Christ Jesus, therefore, is what we might call a synonym for such a great salvation. God's great intention is for a great salvation that is called anakephaliosis. You'll see it in print if you want to. It simply means the heading up or summing up, or as Irenaeus called it, recapitulation of all things in Christ. The prime verse for that is Ephesians 1.10, though Colossians 1.20 also speaks of it. This summing up of all things in Christ is such a great salvation. The summing up is necessarily salvific, we call it, or saving, because God our Savior's will is that all of humankind be saved. That's not just his wish or his hope or his desire. That's his determined resolution. First Timothy 2.4, his will there is thelema, or thelema, rather, thelema, And in the context, it has to do with his intention. When this will or this great intention of God is fulfilled, it will constitute such a great salvation. God's great intention is also called his gracious intention. There's a word for that, eudokia, E-U-D-O-K-I-A, which is found in Ephesians 1.5, where it says, Tain eudokion to thelematos autu, which is the gracious pleasure of God's will. What is the gracious pleasure of God's intention or God's will? The salvation of all of humanity as part of the restoration of all things, all of creation in all of its times. We use the word diachronic for that all of creation throughout all of its time, which means that redemption appeals and applies also to time itself and to history itself. God redeems all, including all of time, including past history. So this summing up is such a great salvation. Again, the summing up is salvific because God our Savior's will is that all humankind be saved. First Timothy 2, 3, and 4. When this will or great intention of God is fulfilled finally and fully for all to see, it will constitute, you guessed it, such a great salvation. God's great intention is also called his gracious intention. God is said to be, quote, the one who works all things according to the purpose of his will. Ephesians 1.11. His will is the salvation of all of humanity, all human beings. The appearance of the grace of God 
which is Titus 2.11, it's called the appearance or the epiphany of the grace of God, is the salvation of all humanity. The very appearance of God's grace, the very epiphany of God's grace, announces the salvation of all humanity, or is in fact the salvation of all humanity, and that's such a great salvation. To effect such a great salvation, to make it effective, efficacious, the man Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and all of humanity, gave himself as a ransom for all. 1 Timothy 2.6. In the language of Hebrews, by the grace of God, it says, Jesus, who indeed was made little lower than the angels for a little while, suffered death so that by God's grace he would taste death for all of humanity. Again, by the grace of God, Jesus, who indeed was made lower than the angels for a little while, suffered death so that by God's grace he would taste death or experience death for all of humanity. I hope you follow this reason. Be reasonable. Be intelligent. Be responsible as well as being attentive, and you'll end up being loving. If you listen carefully and listen with dependence upon the Holy Spirit, By Paul's definition, and we're weaving back and forth into things that we've already studied, by Paul's definition, death, which he personified, and so we put it with a capital D, death is personified also in the book of Revelation. Death is the wages of sin, or we could say it's the paycheck you get from sin, sin personified. By God's grace, Jesus tasted And that word means experienced the wages of sin for all of humanity. You can't taste something without experiencing it. And so when he tasted death, it doesn't just mean that he gave it a little taste. It means that he experienced death as the wages of sin for all of humanity. Hebrews 2, 9. If we are intelligent, And if we follow this sequence of thought, sometimes we say train of thought. If we get on this train of thought, Romans 6.23 says, and I'm giving references so that you can see that I'm not pulling this stuff out of a top hat like a rabbit and like a magician does with a rabbit. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This must mean that since Jesus tasted death for all of humanity, that he experienced the wages of sin, which is death, for all of humanity. If the wages of sin was experienced by Jesus for all of humanity, then the gift of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, is for everybody. In Christ, all will be made alive. That doesn't mean all will be made alive and some will be made alive to be thrown into hell. That means in Christ, all will be made alive, meaning all of humanity is to be made alive with Christ's own life. 1 Corinthians 15, 22b. Life-giving justification is how one translation puts it in Romans 5.18. It's a universal gift. It's given to all of humanity through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are talking here about such a great salvation. Now, again, this is not an interpretation that I magically pulled like a rabbit out of a top hat. Paul had been reasoning through Romans all the way to Romans 6.23. Along the way, he showed that by one righteous act, Ikaoma, of one Jesus Christ, the righteous one, justification and life came to all of humanity in Romans 
Before that, Paul had declared that Jesus was, quote, delivered over for our sins and raised up for our justification, Romans 4.25. If we bring 1 John 2.2 on board here in this particular thinking or train of thought, then our sins means the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation. Who? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation, expiation for all the sins, all of our sins, and not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. By the same logic, the purification uh, for sins, which the Son made according to Hebrews 1.3, after which he sat down, That's the purification of the sins of the world. Purification for sins means purification for the sins of the world, all of humanity and all of its times, diachronically. This accords elegantly with the statement of John the baptizer, which leads off the narrative of the Gospel of John. Look, there's the Lamb of God said John the baptizer when he laid eyes on Jesus. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1.29. And by this sequence of logic, Christ's appearance at the crossroads of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9, 26, must mean that he put away the sin of the whole world. If you're not following this message, then do this. Take Hebrews 9, 26 and put it next to John 1, 29 and read them together. Now, Again, Jesus is the messenger of the great salvific intention of God. This is agreeable with what we have in Hebrews 2.3. That such a great salvation was what? Declared through the Lord himself. Read it. It's in there. Hebrews 2.2 2 and 3. And why not? It is only reasonable that the son given to us in Isaiah 9.5, LXX, I 9.6 English or Hebrew translation. It's only reasonable, be reasonable, that the son given to us, also known as the messenger of the great intention, would be the one to declare such a great salvation. When it says declare or speak, I believe it's laleo there, it means that the son in whom God spoke not only spoke of such a great salvation, but he also became the manifestation of such a great salvation. The son never spoke on earth in the days of his flesh. He never spoke unless he first heard the father. He never made a judgment call unless he first heard his father John 5:30 the eternally generated son as the eternal word in John's gospel did not come first to speak but he came to be spoken to be spoken by the father when god spoke in a son he spoke such a great salvation jesus is the word that God spoke with finality in these last days. Jesus was so named because he saves his people from their sins. In Matthew 121, sorry, I just thought it sounded Pentecostal there. A Pentecost, it's required for Pentecostal preachers, my brothers in Christ, not mocking, but it's required that they add another syllable every once in a while. So they say salvation. See, the emphasis comes there. Salvation. Not just salvation. Salvation. Now then, we're talking about so great a salvation. 
Jesus is the word that God spoke with finality in these last days. His name means salvation. Yehoshua, short, Yeshua, anglicized, Jesus, Yahweh saves, or the salvation of Yahweh, Jesus. He is such a great salvation. Jesus Christ and him crucified is the salvation of God. That which all flesh together will see and experience. Revelation 1.7 conferring with Zechariah 12.10 and Daniel 7.13 and 14 along with Isaiah 40 verse 5 confer and compare with Luke 3.6. God was in Christ. God was in the crucified Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. 2 Corinthians 5.19. God did not impute the trespasses of the world to the world because the Lamb of God was taking away the sin of the world and making expiation for the sins of all the world. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, that's what he's called in 1 John 2, 1, in Acts 22, 14. That's what he's called in Romans 1, 17, in a Christological interpretation of Habakkuk 2, 4. That's what he's called in 2 Peter 3, 18. He died, the righteous one for all the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, was becoming and has become the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. I'm saying propitiation there for a reason, because it's a word that theologians and preachers are afraid of today. And by doing that, they have stripped the gospel from a lot of its punch. 1 John 2, 1 to 2 1 Peter 3.18, and we'll speak a lot more about propitiation and expiation, which is their preferred term for sure, and a very important term. The sun, when we get to the blood groove, you'll find out what propitiation means, what expiation means, and what substitution means. The sun announced the great intention by becoming the great intention, by becoming salvation for the world. It is God's doing that Jesus Christ was made to be wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption for us. Redemption for us. So, such a great salvation is also so-called because its horizon is universal and its author is God crucified. As we've discovered, such a great salvation refers not only to the forgiveness of the sins of all humanity, that's not the whole package there, it's salvation, such a great salvation, refers not only to the forgiveness of the sins of all of humanity in all of time, but it also refers to life-giving justification or rectification for all of humanity in all of its times. But there's even more, and that's what we're getting to and getting at, at he- in Hebrews. There is even more. Such a great salvation refers, listen carefully, this is the centerpiece of this message. Such a great salvation refers ultimately to Jesus, the Son of God, in solidarity with all of humanity. It refers ultimately, I'll say it this way, it refers ultimately, such a great salvation refers ultimately to the solidarity of Jesus, the Son of God, and the Son of Man. 
with all of humanity and of all of humanity becoming partakers of the divine nature in him. It was impossible for that solidarity to be effected or made effective without the suffering of God because of sin and its consequences. Death, sin, and death. Sin and death. Sin and death entered into all the human race like a universal pandemic. A universal pandemic is when everybody gets sick, not just a whole bunch of people in all the countries. Death, sin, and its resultant death, wages of sin, entered into all the human race like a universal pandemic infecting all of the human race. Consequently, sin had to somehow be removed and death eradicated if God was going to be in solidarity with mankind and vice versa. This could only be accomplished by a person and an action from beyond humankind, enacted for humankind, all of humankind, and made effective in humankind, ultimately in each and every human being. One here, one there, not all at once. At least not in this world, not all at once. For humanity to be brought into solidarity with the Son of God and thus with God, for to be brought into solidarity with the Son of God is also or is thus to be brought into solidarity or unity with God. And for the Son of God and thus God to be in perfect solidarity with humankind, for that to happen, suffering and death was required on God's part. That is why the scripture says that God, for whom and through whom are all things, should make the champion who secured salvation for us perfect through suffering. Hebrews 2.10, I'm pointing forward. Now we're beginning to see, now listen carefully. Right now we're beginning to see the answer to the twofold question posed early on in Hebrews 2020. Right at the beginning of the Corona series within the Hebrews series, around increment 13 and elsewhere. Why did the Son have to be perfected? And why through suffering? So you may ask now, why have you recapped so much about this salvation? Why do you keep recapping this salvation? You've shown us the terms that anakephaliosis, apocatastasis, the great intention, over and over again. You could say, haven't we already heard Most of this, if not all of it. Well, in answer to that, let me refer to Hebrews 2, 1. Let's go exegetical now. For this reason, we must be much more attentive to what we have heard. Gotcha. So we don't drift away. Speaking as a pastor to a congregation, and again, anyone who chooses to listen to this may listen. You might have bumped into this website, and you're curious. So you've listened to some of these messages. Or you might have bumped in and just left and hit and run. Who knows? But we have heard of what I call the USSJC. It's not a United States ship. It's the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. That's what I've titled it. 
as a general motif. And we've also heard of what I call UICC, the universally saving impact of the cross of Christ. So instead of closing the book on what we have heard with regard to these timeless truths, we need to become more attentive to these truths as they develop and become more fruitful, giving birth to more insights, and as they become effective to impart needed momentum for spiritual progress. The trials that have come upon all the world, Revelation 3.10, haven't stopped coming. USSJC slash UICC is what we call a fruitful insight put together. Such a great salvation has been achieved, has been achieved, I said, has been achieved from beyond us and for us by God who is for us in such a great and saving way in his love that he did not spare his only son, but freely gave him over, Romans 8.32, to taste death, Hebrews 2.9, for us all. Romans 8.32 says for us all. Hebrews 2.9 doesn't disagree, saying he tasted death for all people. By paying the closest possible attention to what we have heard, that great salvation wrought from beyond us in divine transcendence and for us in divine promeity is to work in us, in us, in us, to effect an experiential solidarity and great fellowship with the Son. It would be foolish. Beyond that, now listen. The reason I repeat and repeat and repeat is because it's preparation for further insight based on that insight. That's what I mean by a fruitful insight. It would be foolish. It wouldn't be attentive. It wouldn't be intelligent. It wouldn't be reasonable. It wouldn't be responsible. And it certainly would not be loving To think that we could lose the salvation that God has wrought from beyond us and for us in his son. But it is intelligent and reasonable to think that we can neglect this salvation to our own peril and choose an experience of death rather than life and peace by setting our mind on the flesh instead of the spirit. In other words, our experience can block the working of this salvation in us by choosing to mind the things of the flesh, to be occupied with what's going on on the earth and with political ideology clashes, etc., rather than to be have the set our mind on the spirit, which is life and peace. Romans 8, 6. Romans 8, 6. Romans 8, 6. I said it three times. Read it sometime. Speaking as a pastor to a congregation, I'm urging you about these things. Again, it's intelligent and reasonable to think that we can neglect this salvation, even though it's already been wrought for us from beyond us, and choose an experience of death in this life. Rather than life and peace by setting our minds on the flesh instead of on the spirit. And what the spirit is teaching us. In other words, neglecting the word of God. It's not part of my schedule, you might say. I don't have time. The word that is translated, be attentive, strained, isn't it? Is prosekine. It actually says be attentive here. We must be all the more attentive. One translator I read said we must be pay the most, the closest, not closer, but the closest attention. And I think he's right about that. The word that is translated be attentive is prosekine. 
P-R-O-S-E-C-H-E-I-N. And it's used most notably, I think, in 2 Peter 1.19. There, Peter, who had not only heard the Lord Jesus and even seen his majesty on the Mount of Transfiguration, seen it with his own eyes on what he called the Holy Mountain. Peter also, with James and John, the brothers of Zebedee, the the sons of Zebedee, he also heard the voice of God the Father coming across the mountains, as it were, echoing about, and it came to Jesus, he said, from the majestic glory in heaven, saying, this is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. I'm completely pleased with him. After recounting this singular experience, Peter wrote, and so we have the prophetic word, the word spoke, spoken by God in the prophets, confirmed in the word spoken in God's son, to which we do well, he says, Second Peter 1, 19, to which we do well, we perform honorably, to be attentive as to a lamp in a dark place until the dawn breaks and the day star is caused to rise in our hearts. My sister Becky recently wrote a text to me saying, congratulations to the astronauts who recently left this world. Good choice. Well, we can't all leave the world. And by the way, even if you did leave the world, you'd take yourself with you. And you wouldn't escape much at all. And this dark place in which the lamp is shining is this world. It's this evil age. As Paul put it in Galatians 1.4. Peter is actually saying here in 2 Peter 1.19. That an attentiveness to the prophetic word that's now confirmed in God's son. His beloved son has its glorious effect, like a day star rising in our hearts. It has its glorious effect in our hearts through our continuous attentiveness to it. It's the kind of attentiveness that looks at the only light source in an otherwise totally dark and gloomy place, this world. Current events that have unfolded in this world merely reveal the condition of humanity under sin and with the fear of death. A pandemic reveals our frail state in these temporary mortal bodies. Wars, ethnic cleansing, the murder of innocents, brutality, destruction, the unprotested deaths of tens of thousands of Christians persecuted from Syria to China, with a persecution that's edging its way toward our shores and toward our country. All of this reveals a humanity alienated from the life of God. Humanity, listen carefully, humanity, though alienated from the life of God, is a humanity from beyond whom and for whom such a great salvation was wrought. But it's not working within. That's what we got to become woke to. Awake, you sleepers, and rise from the dead, you deadheads, and Christ will shine on you. And I'm not just speaking of fans of the Grateful Dead. We who have heard of this great salvation and this great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13, do well to keep on paying the closest attention to that word, to that gospel, to those truths, timeless truths, and not to be distracted into following what appears to be light, but is really darkness. 
We who will have heard, we who have heard, must be more attentive than ever or we will drift away. The currents that cause the drifting of believers today have become rip currents. They're very powerful currents to cause you to drift away. First, it's distraction, then leads to drifting. Then to a kind of perishing, which isn't losing eternal salvation. That's right. How can you lose a salvation that was wrought from beyond us and that was wrought for us by God? Well, we can lose an experience of that life and salvation and be alienated from it in this life by simply neglecting the word of God. And there's a lot of churches that meet together and socialize and they're so happy to be together and they sing songs and they sing hymns and they move back and forth and they bang their tambourines and do a square dance in the middle of the aisles and act all happy, but there's no word of God preached in that assembly from now until hell freezes over. And it already has. Going to church doesn't mean a damn thing. Going to church doesn't mean a thing. If you set your foot into the house of God without being ready to listen to the word, all you're going to do is make a sacrifice of fools. That's what Ecclesiastes 5.1 says. So if you're so urgent to get back to church, why? Is it so that you can hear the word of God or so that you can show yourself to other people and see other people just like you do on social media? Because it's all about me and seeing me and seeing you and being together and la-dee-da. It's the word. How many churches have been offering the sacrifice of fools? By doing all their talking and doing all their preaching and doing all their singing and doing all their do si in the aisles. And yet it's not a response to the word, the implanted word, which is only able to save the soul. A stimulating experience in church all does one thing, stimulates you while you're in church. And then maybe for a little while afterwards, while you're talking over dinner about how you were stimulated. You can have it. I'd rather watch a movie. But anyways, I'm preaching. And, there's, and Jim's the only one. Poor Jim has to listen to all this preaching. And he's, he's the only one face-to-face in this place. But you know who you are. We know who we are. I'm going to move to the last gear. We who have heard must be more attentive than ever, or we will drift away. I've seen it happen. I've seen more people drift away than stay in the current of the word over the course of 41 years of teaching the word. You think that's a heartbreak or what? It is. It's a heartbreak. But it's part of the job. We who have heard must be more attentive than ever or we will drift away on a wave of ideological deception and a rolling blackout of the soul that is sweeping away countless millions who have been convinced that God does not exist, or if he does, he's not relevant, or if he does, he's just, he or she is just the universe, that believers in God are the boon of mankind, or the bane of mankind, rather, and of nature, and that the creature alone and without God is the measure of all things. That's the ideological sweep. And people like Freud and Marx and Engels and even scientists and Descartes and Darwin and existentialists like Sartre and others have helped build this ideology of nihilism. And so, I don't want to be swept away in it. I don't want our children to be swept away in it. I don't want our grandchildren to be. In fact, I'd rather say with Jacob about Joseph's sons, Jacob's grandsons, he said, the God who has delivered me from all evil, the angel of the presence of Yahweh that has delivered for me from all evil, bless these boys. 
And you are a blessing to your children and grandchildren if you continue in the word. They might not see it in this life. This ideology brings people into a state in which they are darkened in their understanding, estranged from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Ephesians 4.18. Those words are among the saddest in human language. This is the state of us all, except for the lamp in this dark place. For our lamp is the Lamb, says Revelation 21, 23. And speaking of the Lamb, Judy Hobleib, who has been with me for these 40 year, 41 years and with all of us in Tetelestai, and for longer than that, with a pastor before I got here, Judy Hobleib very recently drew my attention, hey Jude, to a paragraph in Fleming Rutledge's The Crucifixion, which she'd been reading on and off for about six months now, and that's a good idea. Fleming Rutledge's The Crucifixion. And she quoted to me a passage in which Rutledge quoted a passage in theologian Miroslav Volf, V-O-L-F, in which he describes what he calls, quote, the most surprising thing about the book of Revelation. And it's kind of like what became the most surprising thing to us when we studied Rev the book in 514 hours together. This is what Miroslav Volf wrote and was quoted by Fleming Rutledge. Quote, the most surprising thing about the book of Revelation, it is that at the center of the throne holding together both the throne and the whole cosmos that is ruled by the throne, we find the sacrificed lamb. At the very heart of the one who sits on the throne is the cross. The world to come is ruled by one, the one who on the cross, listen, took violence upon himself in order to conquer and embrace the enemy. I say, he says, in order to conquer and embrace the enemy. He took violence upon himself. He didn't enact it on others, whether in reaction or in brutal abuse of power. The lamp, imagine if God abused his power, omnipotence. If God abused his power, you know what there would be as a result? Hell. People who believe in hell say that God has abused his omnipotent power. You're blaspheming. You don't know you're blaspheming, and that's why you're still walking around on the earth. Now then, he goes on to say, the world, I'll say it again, the world to come is ruled by the one who, on, who on the cross took violence upon himself in order to conquer and embrace the enemy. He goes on to say the Lamb's rule is legitimized not by the sword, but by its wounds. The goal of its rule is not to subject, but to make people reign forever and ever. Revelation 22.5. With the lamb at the center of the throne, the distance between the throne and the subjects has collapsed in the embrace of the triune God. That's pretty good. That's Miroslav Volf quoted by Fleming Rutledge on page 382 and 83 of her book from page 300 and something in his book, which is called, I'll just write it down. I wrote it down. Exclusion and Embrace, a Theological Explanation of Identity, Otherness, and Reconciliation, page 300 to 301. Now, I'm going to close. Some of you are going to say happily. The lamb at the center accords with our own theme in Rev the book. We have seen the centrality of the lamb in Paul also, specifically in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, compared with 15, 27, and 28. And in Romans 8, 31 to 32. And even more recently, we've also seen Jesus as the lamb at the center of Hebrews in Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ who offered himself without spot, without spot means as a lamb, to God, through the eternal or age-abiding spirit, 
Purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, meaning as a priest, to serve as priests. And so Hebrews 9.14 shows the blood of the lamb cleansing the innermost part of the individual person. That's salvation in its effect in the innermost part of the person called the conscience. The ideologies of our time are trying to impose guilt on you. Whether it's guilt for being this kind of person, that kind of person, this color person, this cultural person, this person that is wealthy, this person that is poor, this person that has failed, this person who has succeeded. It's all about a heaping tablespoon of guilt. Guilt itself is evil. The blood of Christ purifies the conscience from evil works, dead works, to serve the living God. Dead works come because you're guilty about something. So you feel you've got to do something to assuage your guilt. And that itself neglects the salvation that has been wrought through the blood of Jesus Christ. Everything Christians do because of guilt to try to assuage their guilt, to assuage it or to somehow ameliorate or mitigate their guilt is a dead work. It doesn't count. It's not rewardable and God's not going to reward you for them or me. We got to get to the place where guilt don't work on us. All right. Preaching. However, all of this is germane to the grand theme of such a great salvation. Works all the way down into the conscience of each individual. That's a great salvation. However, in keeping with the juxtaposition of exposition and exhortation, let's return to the first hortatory salvo of Hebrews. In Hebrews 2, we're in verses 2 and 3, we're warned with a grim possibility. Hebrews 2, 2, for if the word spoken by angels was firm and every violation of it and disobedient act against it received a just penalty, how will we escape, meaning a just penalty, If we pay no attention to such a great salvation, every violation and disobedient act against the word spoken at Sinai through angels received the just penalty. For some violations and acts of disobedience against the word spoken by angels at Sinai, the penalty was death. What could be the penalty of neglecting or paying no attention to such a great salvation? Now, a lot of this is, in fact, hypothetical. What could it be? But how about this? What if the penalty was something we inflicted upon ourselves, alienation from the life of God? I'd call that a face a fate worse than death is to be living a human existence while being dead to God. And there's a lot of people that Paul says that are walking around in Hebrew in 1 Timothy 5, 6 that are dead while they're living and they don't even know it. They're dead while they're living. The only living they have is through the stimulation they get from outside or for something they ingest or something they do. To think that the triune God would rescind or recall Such a great salvation that he wrought from beyond us and for us all is to think unintelligently, unreasonably, irresponsibly, and with no concern for the love of God or the knowledge of God who is love. The gifts and the calling of God are without recall. He doesn't call them back. Romans 11, 29. But this so great salvation, such a great salvation can be lost to us during this life. The experiencing of it during this life and in this evil age, if it is not active in us through being attentive, through our being attentive to the prophetic word now confirmed in God's son. We don't make that a priority. We don't make that the thing we do in life. I, for one, would rather die than to be dead while I'm living and only alive by the stimulations provided by this world? Are you kidding me? I'd rather die. Again, 
This would be the state of us all, dead while we're living. Except for the lamp in this dark place. And again, our lamp is the lamb. Amen.